Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Okay. So are we sitting or standing? How's this going to work? You want to arm wrestle? Yeah. Okay, let's I do it. Phones come off, everybody. Yeah. All right. It's so embarrassing when you're doing a reading and your own phone goes. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That's not going to look good. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for coming, folks. I appreciate everybody ah, turning out today. Um, I'm really happy to be doing this at this place in particular. Um, uh, Skylight's one of my favorite bookstores, and I probably don't have to tell you guys that a bookstore like this, as hard as it is to survive in the age of Amazon, not only allows you know browsing and discovering things accidentally, but it allows for real conversations, real community, real connection with human beings over culture. It's not just about algorithms and uh, uh, AI recommending things. It's a real encounter between human beings and culture. There's less and less of that in the world these days, so I'm uh, quite pleased to be here with Jan and the rest of you to talk about this stuff. So, uh, Janet, I'll defer to you for now. Yeah, well, it's I'm happy to be here um, as the uh, interrogatory uh, person. There we go. Um, and uh, happy to be uh, interrogating Scott on his book, uh, Culture Crash, The Killing of the Creative Class. And I bet many people in this room are uh, part of that. Equation, uh, Scott's veteran journalist, specializing in arts and culture, former arts reporter for the LA Times, has written on music and culture for Salon.com, New York Times, and GQ, runs the blog Misread City, about culture in Los Angeles, and Culture Crash. A hard-working LA Times reporter, he got caught up in the tidal wave of layoffs uh, in 2008, which saw a reduction of reporters, downsizing of the paper, and the mismanagement era, era of Sam yep. Zell, but was part of Good a larger times. gutting of American journalism. In the four years between 2008 and 2012, saw a cut of three-quarters of the reporting jobs in America. Uh, and, be- and he began to examine the phenomenon of a- the implosion of jobs in cultural fields across the board, from the death of the recording industry to the closure of the newspapers to reporting on arts, not only the drawing up of paid work for a cultural producer, the writer, the reporter, the musician, the actor, but also all the people who support that work, the video store clerk, the bookstore, um, all kinds of knowledge workers uh, who put culture into our hands, printers, drivers, distributors. Um, The issue has more doors than an advent calendar. (laughs) (laughs) So we were talking about which end of the elephant uh, do we begin with now. And I thought... What interests me about the what interests me about the book? I mean, everything interests me about this book. This could be a class. This could be an ongoing uh, seminar for the next. Really, it's it's a way into the evolution of our culture in a very uh, 
grim and hilarious way. Yes, thank you. Um, and I think well, the thing I wanted to start with was talking about the collapse of the creative class being part of the collapse of the middle class. Mm. And let's start with that. Right. Well, let me uh, let me say too. Um, you guys should all come back tomorrow to see. Uh, Paul Beatty, his new book is awesome. And uh, I've, I've seen so many good people here, including uh, David Mitchell, the English uh, writer, and uh, Amy Bender, and you know so many great uh, people. So thanks again for supporting the, uh, the series here. All right, the central idea of my book, it took me a while to get there. But I came into the book asking a bunch of questions. I mean, I had been aware I'd been a journalist and a, uh, a you know, uh, record store shopper and uh, a reader of the newspapers and writer of the newspapers, and I was paying attention in kind of a passive way at all the things were happening. Uh, around 2000, uh, uh, I read about how Napster and these other things were undercutting musicians' royalties I heard about, and, and earnings. I heard about... Um, uh, uh, I saw record stores that I loved closing, Aaron's Records, Rhino Records. Uh, I had seen, uh, when I moved to town, the first weekend I was here, I went to um, Midnight Special over in Santa Monica, which I thought was awesome. It's one of the reasons I moved to L.A. So I saw this happening, and when I was at the Times, I wrote a lot of um, obits for bookstores, uh, the both Dutton's stores, which were wonderful places, um, and I know Doug a bit, and, uh, uh, you know, used bookstores, Etc. So I saw, and I, I lived through with it in the six years I was at the LA Times. I lived through something like six or seven waves of layoffs, where there was the, you know, you, you hear the rumor coming that people are going to lose their job, and then they do, and then there's these depressing lunches or drink ups afterwards, or it's going to really call me if you have you know, if anything comes up, I'll, you know. So I went through all this stuff kind of from the sidelines, and it it, it became very tangible to me when I, when I lost my job, and I the woman next to me, Linnell George, who's also a writer, who you may know. And my favorite ever editor, whose name is Maria Russo, also lost her job the same day. I mean, it was an incredible decimation. It became very tangible. So I was asking questions. What happened to the musicians, to the journalists, to the people on my block? This was fall 2008. The people on my block who were animators, who were photographers, etc., who were losing their jobs, who had their marriages, in some cases, fragment, uh, who, who lost their houses, in some cases, medical insurance, blah, blah, blah. I wanted to know what was going on. So I started asking questions. And I did not realize until it's about halfway into this book that the real issue is not the only issue. There's a lot of things, and there's some things that are distinctive about being a creative being or or being part of the creative economy. Whether you're, you know, a um, composer of symphonies like a John Adams or a uh, bookstore clerk, you're kind of wired to a similar economy. So there are things that are that make you a little bit different than than somebody who works on an assembly line. But the middle class and the creative class are deeply interwoven. They're part of, they're vulnerable in the same ways. Um, the Part of the reason it took me so long to, to figure this out, I mean, I do this for a living. You know, and I was like, you know, years and years of thinking about these things before I really focused on it. And the, the writer, Jaron Lanier, who some of you may know, who's an internet skeptic in Silicon Valley, the book Who Owns the Future, is I think his latest, was one of the people who helped bring me around on this. And, you know, so why does it take, why does it seem so counter intuitive or so wrong or so strange to say that um, the creative class and the middle class are sort of bound up together and are uh, will go down to you know rows together and will go down and are sort of f coming down together um, the, 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 the 
one of the things I try to do in the book is to bust myths. You know, it's something that uh, Barbara Ehrenreich is so good at. And I, I saw this book kind of in the line of, of Barbara Ehrenreich's work. Uh, so why is it so strange to say that? It's because historically we've thought of the artist, you know, in sort of the, the notion of the artist over time, over the centuries, has changed in some subtle ways, some not so subtle ways. But there's always been this sense that the since the Renaissance, at least, there's been this idea that the artist is this sort of ethereal being, you know, whether it's Michelangelo back in in Italy or say Jimi Hendrix uh, more recently, you know, this this idea that the artist sort of walks on water, lives on this sort of exalted. Planet. And some of them do, and some of them are huge stars and live very different lives. Beyonce leads a very different life than Janet I do, for instance. Uh, but the artist, the I'll, I'll speak for myself. I don't know about Janet. Um, so, so, th- so there's been a uh, there, there, there's there's been this sort of th- this idea of the artist as a as a hero or a superstar, which is amplified by the fact that the people you read about, especially you know, go pick up on the way out of here, pick up like Vanity Fair. Or, or you know, really any newspaper, but especially Vanity Fair, New York Times, T Magazine, you know, my old paper, the the, the LA Times. It's the nature of media coverage, and there's nothing corrupt or evil about it. But it's the nature of media coverage, especially in a sort of. My son's here, so I won't use the term I, the word that begins with star and ends with uh, C K E I N G. Um, but in, an era, in a sort of lifestyles of the rich and famous, celebrities are just like us kind of period where we're besotted with wealth and power. Uh, the, the, there's a, there's a uh, an obsession with these people at the very very top of the uh, of the economic and fame scale. So when's the last time you read a story in the mainstream press about visual art that wasn't about either a auction prices, you know, Christie's auction about, you know, Francis Bacon gets 100 million or is a profile of some dipshit like Jeff Koons, you know? <laughs> Those are the people who get who get attention. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not smaller, you know, small reviews of a gallery show or uh, a piece on a small indie rock mu- musician or a, or a jazz musician with a show at the Blue Whalers. You, you get a little bit of that stuff, but increasingly you get a sort of winner-take-all thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why when you say middle-class artists, huh, the artists I hear about are multi-millionaires or they're self-branding people like Taylor Swift or whatever. So that's one myth that, that, like most myths, is based in something real. I mean, Michelangelo existed, uh, uh, Hendrix existed, these people were rich, they were powerful, uh, etc. Hendrix's actually peak of wealth probably lasted about two years. He didn't really live to see it through, but let's say the Stones you know, are genuinely rich people with, who don't exist really in the economy I'm describing. But people like the Stones or Michelangelo are an incredibly tiny anomaly. The other myth, and this doesn't go back as far, and again, this is rude in something real. But the myth that goes back to 19th century Paris, which is where we get a lot of our ideas of what the arts or the the poet, the artist, etc., um, in 19th century Paris, the myth of the sort of the, the sort of Baudelarian myth, you know, the myth of the Poe figure, you know, the the sort of dejected poet passed out in the gutter with, you know, the the, the bottle of absinthe, you know, or something, and you know, so there's a sense that artists, uh, whatever their genre, because a lot of these conceptions kind of cross over, um, you know, fields, that the artist is a sort of dejected, you know, genius who not only suffers for his or her 
art but benefits from the suffering, right? That it's, it's sort of like what they're meant to do. And if you take that away from them, you take away something real and sort of nourishing. So when you see a, one of these kind of depressing concerts for a musician, uh, Victoria Williams or Vic Chestnut, who has since expired, or these other people who don't have medical insurance, what you're seeing is a culture that, that thinks that artists, and I mean a musical culture in some cases too, that think that artists don't follow the same uh, rules as the rest of us, that when they're cut, they don't bleed. In fact, an artist, even if they're well-regarded, getting written about in newspapers, getting played on the radio, etc., are uh, still have to pay rent or a mortgage. They still need medical insurance, which until recently was difficult for independent people to get. Um, they, if they have children, they still need to live in a safe neighborhood, have a place to send their kids. So we've overlooked for hundreds of years this middle place where not only a bookstore clerk or a or an architect or whatever, but musicians, novelists, short story writers, poets, etc., um, who you have heard of in a lot of cases, you know, famous people, uh, you know, um, still live in the same kind of middle class world that most of the rest of us do. So when the middle class starts to get decimated by kind of Reagan Thatcher, by an economic collapse, by a winner take all economy, that's something that, that impacts the creative class just as uh, acutely and brutally as it does uh, a school teacher or a uh, worker on a Detroit assembly line. Well, this idea that artists don't need to be recompensed for their labor is kind of an interesting one, you know. Um, Increasingly popular idea, too. Yeah, this, let's talk about this idea of free, the culture of free, free. Um, <clears throat> you know, information wants to be free, you know. Um, evidently, from your book, uh, I learned that um, Stuart Brand, who founded the Whole Earth Catalog, said in 1984, an icon here, <laughs> yeah. uh, he said, on Funny one hand, information wants to be expensive because it is so valuable. The right information in the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two fighting against each other. When we hear that quote, information wants to be free, we never hear the rest of it. Right, true. You know, it's that, it's, it's like, I can remember in the 60s, it's like, steal this book. You know, stick it to the man, uh, liberate, you're liberating it. You're not stealing it. It's for the people, you know, and yeah. hijack it, you know. Um, and what's happened is that it's, it's like technology has, it's like it's um, appropriated this sort of liberation thought into a very, very um, useful, attractive, and uh, valuable for them. Well, it's certainly uh, useful for the people at Google and places like that, you know, because it means that the books you write or, you know, the records that, say, Jason Moran, who's a jazz pianist, make, the people who work at the labels or the publishing houses or the actual artists themselves, say, you or, or a musician, those people are making less and less, but the people who, ha who own Amazon, Google, um, who handle fan pages at Facebook, all these other things, these people are, are making all the, all the dough. I mean, I did a 
uh, and you can go to, I've never been there, but you read about the newly redesigned Google campus and it's sort of head spinning. I did an event at the public, at the Central Library with uh, this guy, John McRae, who's the lead singer of a band called Cake, and they performed at the Google um, uh, campus a few years ago, and he said it was the closest thing he's ever seen to the, um, to Rome at the height of its power. You know, that you had, um, there was free sushi everywhere, there were bars making like hand muddled everything, and um, it was around Christmas time, or I'm sorry, it was around Halloween, so they had um, pumpkins like as big as this tree, they had Hollywood um, makeup artists flown in to make people up as zombies or whatever thing they wanted. I mean, there's just kind of incredible bounty, and this is Northern California, and they've just got acres and acres and acres of green land stretching, you know, almost all the way to the sea. It's kind of incredible. So it's, I think it's interesting and, and important that this idea came out of hippie culture and that Silicon Valley is in Northern California. You know, and as you, what you, the way you framed it is exactly right, that, um, that there was a sense in the 60s and 70s that you're doing something kind of socially progressive or kind of groovy or kind of individualistic to steal a book. Or, and that drove some of the Napster thing too. Like a lot of these kids who were downloading, you know, pirating music didn't think they were screwing their favorite musicians over. They thought they were doing something kind of edgy and that was part of DIY culture, part of alternative culture. What they don't realize is, you know, you start to kill off the record labels, the publishing houses, the especially the independent movie studios that make a Spike Jones or a Richard Linklater or a Catherine Bigelow movie possible, then you're destroying the whole infrastructure that allows an artist to get paid. And uh, it's not socially liberating for anybody except the big tech corporations. Right. It's, it's a the, problem. It's so it's great news for them. And that's part of the reason they pump this stuff out. Wired Magazine loves it. You know, Fast Company loves it. Republican and, in some cases, Democratic politicians love it. This guy who bought, this eight-year-old who bought the New Republic, uh, Chris, what's his name? Um, you know, he's, he's as, probably as far left as anybody in this room on social issues. He's a married gay guy. He's all for legalized this, legalized that. But, like most of these Silicon Valley billionaires, he wants to slice and dice the safety net. That's kind of the Silicon Valley ethos. And it's not the only problem. It's not the only thing I've written about. But it's part of the, part of the puzzle. Right. Um, it's... Uh Let's see. Let's talk about the Monsantoization of the cultural <laughs> crop. Mm. You know, where we talk about... I'll use that phrase in the next as, edition. <laughs> as were, you know, the whole internet, um, you know, allows people from so many microclimates to um, have their work, to grow their non-hybrid seeds of their product. But... So we think that the internet is helping these, uh, you know, this broad spectrum of art flourish in our time. But actually, it's having the other effect. That uh, one of the quote, one of the these amazing, what amazing research you did, that five percent of bands touring make ninety percent of the concert dollar. That. Um, the top ten bands take most of the concert money. Yeah, the Eagles, the Stones, Billy Joel. Yeah, and mm. it's the only, and it's the with the de devalorization. I'm learning all kinds of new terms. 
you know, taking the money out of recording. Recording, people don't make money on recording. Everybody is releasing their stuff on SoundCloud and they're being played on Pandora and Spotify right. and they're not making a cent. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the situation with musicians is interesting. And, you know, the, the usual retort to that is, well, you know, you've always had superstars and, you know, the Stones and the Beatles were bigger than the other bands at the time and there were small guys, middle guys. You know, that's true. If you look at the numbers, I don't have it in front of me, but I do a chapter on indie rock. If you look at the numbers, it's changed starkly uh, since the earliest day where I, date where I had statistics to compare was, was, I think, 1982, which you could argue was the beginning of the indie rock movement as we know it. It was when the Smiths were formed and R.E.M., I think, put out its first EP. In the early 80s, which, you know, there were, I'm not saying the early 80s was a utopian period. There's a lot of bad synth rock at the time, but uh, the economic level, the economic playing field is much flatter. What's happened in the arts, especially pop music, is similar to what's happened to, again, the middle class or the distribution of, of wealth in the country. You've always had rich people, you've always had poor people. You had a middle from about the 30s to the end of the 70s. The middle was growing, or at least was sort of robust and secure, and starting actually happened before Reagan came in, though he certainly um, sped it up. Uh, you started to have a, you know, capital shifted up to the 1% the, the and and the, the poor growing as well. So the, the middle, whether it's musical middle, uh, liter the midlist in literature, you know, the literary middle, or the kind of broader American middle class has been, um, has been decimated uh, in that time. So the internet. Um, you know, the internet is way too big a subject for me to, um, in this book or, you know, this afternoon, get into completely. It's done a lot of good things. There's stuff I like on the internet. There are things that's made possible. Uh, the, the problem is if you believe in... Um, uh, say a brick and mortar bookstore like this one or a record store or a video store like Rocket Video or Vidiots which was just saved at the last the last minute um, etc you know if you believe in places like this or if you believe in certain categories like if you believe in the category of the author as a professional category where an author writes books and makes money for them or a musician somebody who maybe studies for a few years and uh, you know I think of the musicians I love you think of the number of years the Beatles were playing in Hamburg you think of the years it took John Coltrane to, to, to get that technique on a saxophone. You know, if you believe in, in, uh, in the musician, the author, as a professional category, then the Internet, which, again, has done good things, the Internet is not their friend. It's uh, undercutting these places. I'm not the only person, I'm not the first person to say it, but if you look at the numbers, there's no way around it. I was in my 20s in the... 90s, and in some ways, my sensibility is that of the 90s. And Slate dissed me for being a 90s nostalgist. Uh, Jeb Bush recently said, "Is anybody nostalgic <laughs> for the 90s? How could that be?" You know, something like that. <laughs> Thinking, hmm, that's the decade where there was the least dominance by a Bush president in the <laughs> since the 70s. Um, I do think there are several people who do think the 90s had some things going for it. Anyway, in the 90s, it really seemed. You know, I remember when I was first put on the internet and and got email and. When I first started working for a now defunct paper here, I mean, so many papers and weeklies and so on have been crushed by the internet. I worked for a weekly called called New Times, which was owned by insane people, but I think we did some, some good work. I'm proud of what I did. I worked with smart people. We went after the Church of Scientology and wrote tough pieces about culture and politics. And anyway, but the internet revolution wiped that place out. And um, the 
the, the sense that the internet was a was a bohemian was creating a sort of mass indie culture that there were small labels and you could publish your own poetry, desktop publishing, all this stuff. You know, th there was. I remember that excitement. I remember believing it in some ways. A lot of musicians I spoke to who are now actively frustrated with the. Um, you know, uh, with the, the the new world, were excited at at, at the time. Um, the, but the digital revolution has worked out about as well for the creative class as trickle down economics worked mm -hmm. for the middle class. It's not been a startling success, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, it's it's a big subject, but uh, its impact on places like Skylight, on journalists, musicians, uh, authors, etc., is uh, quite uh, quite brutal. Um, it's interesting, this is, yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting to look at, I wanted to bring this up, about blogging, ah, about right. the HuffPo. Mm. You know, we're writers, many of you are writers here, um, and there, I mean, I have a blog. I know you have a blog. I do too, yeah. And, and let me just mention, if you're interested in the stuff we're talking about today, my, I, my old blog, Misread City, has a lot of stuff about L.A., West Coast, but the current blog, Culture Crash, you can Google it, find, you know, my name, and you'll find it, is about this stuff I try almost every day to post on some of the stuff we're talking about today. Anyway, go right. on. So there's this... I remember when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, and Russians would go to work for months without a paycheck. Hmm. And I remember saying, only a Russian <laughs> would go to work and not get paid. Americans would never work for free. How many of you have been an intern? How many of you blog? How many of you have written for the HuffPo yeah. Yeah. and all yeah. this? Yeah. You know, um, are, why are we, it's like we're complicit in our own... Yeah. Demise. There, there's a movement on Facebook. I think it was started by, it was if not started by at least kind of uh, pushed along by a music writer who I really love named Barney Hoskins who has a book called Waiting for the Sun, which I think I bought here actually, um, which is uh, about the history of, of rock and R&B in L.A. going back to the um, 40s. But Hoskins and, and others uh, run something on Facebook called Stop Working for Free, which is an important movement that I think is, is generating uh, energy there, there's a similar related movement that's mostly musicians, but it's starting to accumulate journalists and others called uh, the Content Creators uh, Coalition, which I urge you to check out. A number of people, uh, Roseanne Cash uh, is a member, um, Mark Rebo, the jazz guitarist, is an important uh, member, or I think he's a vice president, and uh, uh, John McRae of Cake, who I mentioned, and a number of, of really substantial people are in that group, and uh, they're doing benefits and trying to accumulate some political momentum. I want to, because um, Carrie has uh, tugged my sleeve, uh, sort of. Um, I'm going to uh, answer a question that Janet didn't ask, um, but which... Um, yeah, exactly. I'm sure it's on her mind. Um, we need to speed this ahead because I need to have time to sign. But, um, you know, the, the question that I think is related to what you just asked is, why did this happen, and why does it take me, you know, to answer this? Why seven years or eight years into the recession are we, in some cases for the first time, talking about the um, plight of, of architects, of record store clerks, of musicians, etc.? I don't mean there haven't been specific conversations with in, you know, 
you know, jazz players talking among themselves about how bad, it, how tough it's gotten to make a living in jazz or whatever, or poets or, or whatever. I'm talking about a larger conversation in the press, on radio, et cetera. Why is it taking so long? Why has not there not been any kind of legislation or other kinds of support? So I was asking myself as I did, the, as I wrote the articles in Salon.com that led to this book, I was asking, why, why have why has it gotten so bad? I mean, I'm seeing it all around me. You know, I lived in a neighborhood in Glendale, which we had eventually had to leave because the, the bank pushed us out, where half the people I knew were creative class people. Again, animators, you know, writers, photographers, etc., whose careers just collapsed. And uh, I was seeing this all around me, but not hearing about it or reading about it in the press. So, you know, why is it? So I'm, I'm going to read a few pages, and then depending on how much time we have, we may, um, I may ask, I may Maybe I'll ask Janet a question, and then uh, then we'll do a few questions from the audience. So, this is the. Um I'm just going to read a couple pages from a chapter called Idle Dreamers. It's about halfway through the book. It's called Idle Dreamers, Curse of the Creative Class. And I use a quote from Paula Fox from the novel uh, Desperate Characters. So it says, there was a siege going on. It had been going on for a long time, but the besieged themselves were the last to take it seriously. So the chapter begins this way. They're pampered, privileged, indulged, part of the cultural elite. They spend all their time smoking pot and sipping acid. Absinthe. To use a term that's acquired currency lately, they're entitled. And they're not, after all, real Americans. This is what we often hear about artists, architects, musicians, writers, and others like them. And it's part of the reason the struggles of the creative class in the opening years of the 21st century, a period in which an economic crash, social shifts, and technological change have put everyone from graphic artists to jazz musicians to book publishers out of work, aren't being taken as seriously as they deserve to be, or worse, have been shrugged off. Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen write anthems about the travails of the working man. We line up for the revival of Death of of a Salesman. John Mellencamp and Willie Nelson hold festivals and fundraisers when farmers suffer. Taxpayers bail out the auto industry and Wall Street and the banks. There's a sense that manufacturing or the agrarian economy, you know, the old family farm, is what America is really about. But culture was, for a while, what America did best. We produce and export creativity around the world. So why aren't we lamenting the plight of its practitioners? The Bureau of Labor Statistics confirms that creative industries have been some of the hardest hit, beginning during the George W. Bush years and continuing through the Great Recession. But when someone employed in the world of culture loses a job, it's easier to dismiss or sneer at their plight than when it happens to, say, a steel worker or an auto worker. Musicians, actors, and other artists we hear about tend to be fabulously successful, but the daily reality for the vast majority of the working artists in America has little to do with bling. Artists in the workforce, a report released by the National Endowment for the Arts in 2008, before the Great Recession sliced and diced this class, showed the reality of the creative life. Most of the artists surveyed had college degrees, but they earned less than the average professional with a median income in 2003 to 5 of $34,800. Dancers on average, made a mere $15,000. More than a quarter of the artists in the 11 fields surveyed uh, live in New York and California, two of the nation's most expensive states where the money runs out fast. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead a page or two and then close out. Uh, I talk about um, 
Puritanism's country, obviously, founded by, we call them pilgrims, which sounds a lot more benign than Puritans, who were dangerous religious fanatics who tore the pews out of churches because people sang there and smashed um, the stained glass in uh, uh, Catholic churches in England. Um, I sort of describe them a little bit, and then I jump ahead. Um, I say, we don't wear buckles on our hats anymore. Even coonskin caps have fallen out of style. But these latent notions of human nature and the American mind have taken a great step forward or backward recently. Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew were demonizing long-haired bohemians, know-it-all professors, journalists, and other seditious types since around the time of Woodstock. The origins of this kind of right populism seems to go back to the segregationist hero George Wallace, the Alabama governor who denounced civil right workers as pointy-headed intellectuals. Agnew added a feet core of impudent snobs and media elite to the language. But these seeds of of suspicion and antipathy really blossomed with the invention of the term cultural elite. During the Murphy-Brown Wars of 1992, Vice President Dan Quayle spoke at the Commonwealth Club of California, connecting the Los Angeles riots to a group sitting, quote, in newsrooms, sitcom studios, and faculty lounges all over America. Jeering at, they were supposedly jeering at regular people. We have two cultures, he said, the cultural elite and the rest of us. Thus was the very word elite severed from its previous associations, many of them positive, with skill and accomplishment or wealth and explicit power. Quayle was, after all, not only a vice president, but a wealthy man who came from several generations of money. Such attacks on the elite also oriented the resented group around education, culinary tastes, critics always seem to describe these elites as drinking white wine or lattes, and attraction to culture. Presumably this cultural elite was driving to the opera in its Volvos, somehow managing to sip both a cappuccino and laugh at regular people at the same time, while dreaming up new ways to undermine the American way. While the cultural left has led assaults on the literary canon or the race and gender of artists whose work hangs in museums and so on, it's rarely duplicated the anti-intellectual populism of the far right quite so well. Cultural elite, says Jonathan Lethem, is a code word for people who are getting away with something for far too long. It's a term of distrust. You can almost hear a plan for vengeance in it. Republican politicians hardened these impulses and made them more virulent and paranoid. So I'll stop there. Um, How much time have we got, Janet? Okay, so I'm going to let me throw one at you, and then we'll get some questions from the audience and do some signing. Um, what brought you uh, into this? Um, I, I started to hear, you know, you started to read on your blog around the time of the Hatchet case, but, but as a novelist, you're somebody, you know, I knew your name before I met you. You're one of the successful kind of famous L.A. novelists. Why is this stuff touching somebody like you, who I think has, you know, a, a hip movie being made of one of your, you know, you've had one movie already, you have another one, you know, you're a well-known California writer. How does this stuff impact you and what brought you into it? Well, I'm a a humanist above all and I'm all, you know, just trying to fight for for you know, the uh, see if this is a Russian audience, I could say the soul of, you know, the soul of the country and nobody would uh, be upset with me. America, you got to be careful because we're a market. Everything is market, market, market. You know, right. the Oscars this year announced people biggest box office, blah, right, blah. And I'm right, like, right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, is, this, is this where Th- that's we're when they're at? not that, that's when they're not talking about what various people are wearing at the Oscars. Oh, ninety percent of our movie coverage I'd in the much in the rather <laughs> what they were wearing. Um, you know, that there's more to a person than um, than market. What is a you know, you can't not everything is marketizable. And uh, people need things. When 9-11 happened, I bet this bookstore was full of people. People were reading serious literature immediately. They needed it. Mm -hmm. They wanted to read Whitman. They wanted Mm -hmm. to read Steinbeck. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to read Shakespeare. They wanted, there is a need there is. I mean, civilization exists. Yeah, I, Society I, exists. I, I remember the, the week after that, t- the risk of branding myself as an evil elitist. I, I was at L.A. Opera seeing um, <laughs> one of the shorter Wagner operas, which means it only took three hours. I think it was a, which one was it? Uh, Lohengrin or something um, that Kent Nagano conducted. And it was, I think for me and a lot of people in the audience, it was the first kind of big grouping, the f- big first big assembly we'd gone to after 9-11 and seeing something that, I mean, Wagner was no... Prince, but that engaged big ideas and, and right. that w- engaged notions of culture and what does it mean to be human, all that it was this incredible, uh, not qu- quite a catharsis, but it was something that you couldn't get without culture and without a live audience around it. Right, so I'm, you know, it's like what helps us become more human? You know, it's not, you know, the the constant stream of celebrity culture, all that stuff. When people are in crisis, they turn to culture, to real culture, to civilization, to their to the roots. They're reading that that book, John the John Adams book. They're mm, reading right, about right, right. where did this country come from. They're reading things right. that feed the soul. And uh, I'm interested in what keeps that alive, what keeps production of that alive in our time. You know, that we don't go it's not always gonna be Shakespeare. There are people right now who right, are right, our right. Shakespeare's who are our Redwoods. You know, mm-hmm. they're growing right now. And how do we keep them alive so that they can grow and they don't have to leave art? I mean, if an artist has to spend 80% of their time as a salesperson and 20% of their time as an artist, are they going to be producing the great works of art yeah. they would be producing if they could be an artist 90% of the time and salesperson 10% of That's the time. That's an excellent point. It's, it's the same as, as, as politicians who spend all their time fundraising and can't do right. any actual governing. The same process is happening to, to artists. And so I got involved. My, my publisher is Hachette, which uh, was the, the weak gazelle mm, as right, far as right, Amazon right. decided to pick it out of the savannah of publishing to go after my publisher to, to get market share, to beat them down on ebook prices, which there are going to be more and more of the books are going to be ebooks. Um, yeah, when you buy an ebook, a lot less of your your money yeah. is not that we get that much when you buy a hardback, but a lot less makes it to an author or a publisher right. when you buy an ebook. A lot more goes to the Amazon or or, or whatever. Right, the distributor is what's making yeah. the money these yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a Kobo that I got here. Right. So, at least, so Skylight gets a piece of every ebook that I buy. Mm. Um, mm. But what's happening is that. Amazon, by sheer size, is able to make demands of the publisher, of the producer. They want a bigger piece, and they want, of course, the writer is going to get screwed the biggest. Uh, yeah. If if I, 
have a book that sells for $15. Amazon says, oh, well, but we want to sell it for $7. The publisher says, no, we set the price. And Amazon says, no, we sell 60% of your books. Yeah. We want yeah, to set the price. It's sort of a price. bully economy. And yeah. they are willing to price under what things are worth. They're willing to lose money year after year after year for market share. The publishers can't do that. I can't live on negative numbers. Right. Um, and my publisher uh, is, a, is a guy named Michael Peach, who is oh. kind of a hero. Who of, edited, uh, uh, he edited David Foster White Wallace. Oleander. And David Foster Wallace also, yeah. right? I think the, he is wow. a crusader for the publishing industry, yeah, and he said yeah. no. No. And or Hachette so, is French, so could you... Uh, uh, how did the uh, people back in Paris say it? How do they say Yeah, no. I can't speak French. You probably can't. That's what <laughs> but he's the one who said no. And, <laughs> in English. Um, it was tough. It was eight months, you know, where they took all the pre-order buttons off. So right, it's like movies right. that have to open big the first... I mean, they played hardball in a million ways. That is tough on new authors. If people don't know you, if you're, it's your first novel, and you're, nobody can pre-order then it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't get out of the gate. It was really horrible. It was really horrible. But he stood, he stood fast. And I wrote a letter. Uh, I went to a Fourth of July party. And under the, you know, uh, wave of patriotism, I wrote to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and I said, oh, you right. need to protect. You, you, because of sheer size, you say that you have no interest in the business itself. All you are is the distributor. But by sheer size, you're already part of the equation. You cannot pretend oh, yeah. that you have no influence in the publishing world. And you should step up to that responsibility and protect the soul. This is the soul of America. Of course, I got no response whatsoever. And that pissed me off. And then he did that yeah, thing where in, a, in the newest wave of assault on the uh, trying to be, get beat my publisher into submission, um, they got, um, you know, the writers got together and put an ad together in the New York Times. Uh, and some thousand are, uh, writers put their names out there for Amazon to see. Retribution was possible. Um, saying that they need to protect the American author and stop this hardball shit. And uh, what Amazon did was it contacted all its self-publishers. And my apologies if any of you are self-publishers. I, I know some people in my family are self-publishers. <laughs> but got them all worked up that somehow letting professional writers make a living hmm. in an, in a mainstream publishing world is somehow th dissing them, threatening right. wow. them. Whereas Amazon sets their prices, Amazon does shit for them. You know, they're never going to, very few of them can make a living, especially in fiction. And everyone you do, you, everyone who can, you hear about incessantly. It's what I call you the know, Amanda Palmer, Horatio so Alger phenomenon. He, he, they shook the trees, they got the um, kind of the I hate to say the wacko element of them <laughs> excited and self-publishing. There's a nice big what you know bunch of them, and they gave my uh, publishers uh, email 
saying right wow. to this guy. So Michael got thousands and thousands uh, and thousands of letters from wow. these people uh, saying that it's elitist right, and right, right. you know you don't need the middleman any. They're trying right. to do to the book industry what happened to the music industry. Yeah, and in get journalism. rid yeah. of the labels and just take all the money. You know, so nobody gets paid. Um, and Michael answered every single one of those wow. emails, Jeez. explaining the situation. People were writing back saying, I had no idea what was uh, going on. Really, con- he just, oh my uh. God. And I was so pissed at the tactics because my boyfriend is a, uh, has a book out, uh, self-published. And so he got the letter, the crazy letter oh, from Bezos. Uh. And so I made my letter that I had written personally. Uh, privately, I made that letter public. Wow, wow. And then I, then I got all the hate mail from the people who were upset that there are professional writers who have been the elect to get by the gatekeepers. You know, I mean, it's not... The, it's not smog. It's you know <laughs> these are not gatekeepers to keep people out. Soren, yeah. These are people who are trying to find what's best in our culture and make a. Yeah, they don't like make people a who work in a place like this. Yeah. Um, to keep that going, and he held fast, and uh, and they won. Wow, awesome! I didn't know they that won. Story, so you know, so but you can't. Are they really? Who's going to win in the long run? You know, if you still buy stuff from Amazon, yep. you're losing. If you right. do, if you do Pandora, you are cutting musicians' throats. And that's yeah. it. Spotify. Yeah. You know, I've stopped using Google. I use DuckDuckGo. I don't give Google a penny. Screw huh. them. Huh. Um, and just, I think that one of the difficulties is the the fact that. Culture workers are middle class, are considered middle class. We're college educated. We're white collar. Blah blah blah. We are babies when it comes to labor yeah. negotiations. We are babies. We are wimps. We have no idea what to do with ourselves. We don't trust each other. We have no. We're atomized. My well, we, we fetishized independence so that any kind of you know collective action seems like some kind of working Detroit working class thing that yeah. our families yeah. have risen above and we don't yeah. need. But in fact, if creative people can't get together and join hands, that's why this group I mentioned, Content Creators Coalition, yeah. which is one of several groups, uh, but that's why a group like that is important because well, that's why you will not important. you will not by yourself fight Bezos and win. But maybe if all of the musicians and right. all of the authors and so on get together and become a force and can lobby Washington and so on and so or on. We're then culture workers. A fair we fight. can influence where it's not cool to use Spotify. You go to a party and somebody is using Spotify. It's like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? You're musicians. Get off of that. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, are, we can influence thought in this culture. And that's, you know, but we have to maybe give up the middle class idea and start realizing we're not going to be in the 1%. Right. We're not. It's a dangerous Forget that notion. aspirational thing, realizing that we are, we are cultural workers and that we do have some pl- clout, but it's not into, as middle class professors in the faculty lounge. It's getting together and saying, no, we're not going to adjunct 
for peanuts. Right. No, we're right. not going right. to. That's the next frontier. Give, actually, give stuff to the HuffPo for free. Right. And but something like this that shows us that this is going around across the board. Yeah. And how it all fits together is. It's huge. It is huge. You cool. really open the door to this I ha- discussion. I hadn't known all of that story, Jen. I appreciate you telling it. Um, I'm going to have to, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, let's do one question, and then I'm going to sign books, and we can talk for a minute. Uh, okay, your hand went up first, ma'am. Um, Janet, I so appreciate hearing you. It's always so nourishing hearing you talk. I actually listened to you at the library. Oh, and cool. And you were so barraged by questions. <laughs> because um, when you got to the part about hope, Ah, uh, right. And you were talking a little bit about postmodernism. I thought, mm. as a woman and a reader of authors of color, mm-hmm. that the canon that you advocate might be a little too white and a little too male. Postmodernism was dull, aside from some French feminisms and things going on early on. Mm-hmm. But it did break down. Right, and your question? And my question there is you advocate going back to the canon which sounded pretty white male to me, and also some kind of spiritual impulse. When I'm feeling, doesn't America need right now a real secular impulse? Given hmm. So let me, right, that's an interesting question. Let me, yeah, let me pose a question. So this, this, will, this will make more sense if you read my book, but the question is about sort of do we need a canon and um, what's my vision for it and do we need a spiritual or a secular impulse in this country? So... Um, the musicians and writers I like don't really matter all that much. I do think we need a canon, though. I don't think the canon needs... There's no reason for the canon to be white, male, straight, anything like that. But if we look back at anything in American history, look at the list of American presidents, look at the list of uh, famous baseball players for the first couple decades, it was white men. You know, the canon is the same way. There's no reason for it to to remain the same way. What I'm against... I'm not opposed to, you know, Juno Diaz, or Toni Morrison or Ursula Le Guin or whatever, or some of my favorite writers being in the canon. What I'm against is attacks from the left or the right. It doesn't matter to me. I'm on the left politically, but it doesn't matter to me where the attacks are coming from. An attack on the idea that the arts, literature, you know, etc., have some kind of meaning and should be studied and held sacred. So when I say we need some kind of spiritual impulse, I don't mean we all need to go to church. I mean, I'm an agnostic myself. What I mean, and I think this country would be, you know, if we just could sort of double down on the idea that our founders uh, pushed that that the separation of church, of church and state was essential, I think we'd be a lot, uh, a lot better off. What I do think we need, and this comes back to what Janet was saying, is to recognize that the, the books on the shelf here, the pieces I'm going to go see played at Disney Hall in an hour, uh, the people who work here. These are all things that are higher than and different than the marketplace or the market for tires or diapers or whatever. When I say we need some kind of spiritual uh, connection or recognizing that culture is sacred, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about giving all your money to a, um, uh, a, a mega church pastor who wants to buy a private jet, for instance, which is something that is just happening in Atlanta right now. Um, so I think that we need to go back. We don't need to go back to having only you know, white male novelists. What we do need to go back to is an idea 
idea that literature, visual art, music, etc., whether it's Nina Simone or you know Miles Davis or uh, uh, Richard Thompson, that there's something uh, that the highest thing, the most noble and in some ways inexplicable thing that a human being can do is to create enduring culture. That's what I'm hoping for, and that's really what this book is about. I should break there. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.